Welcome to the Aesthetic Entrepreneurs GSD, the number one podcast for aesthetic and beauty business owners who want to get stuff done and become the entrepreneurs the world needs them to be. Many of you out there are uncertain, overwhelmed, and confused about this thing called business. Where there's uncertainty, we give you comfort. Where there's overwhelm, we create calm. Where there's confusion, we provide clarity. So welcome to episode two of uh, Aesthetic Entrepreneurs, Getting Stuff Done. Um, I hope you enjoyed episode one, really, really enjoyed doing it, and the feedback I've had has been phenomenal. So thank you very much. It's always a little bit nerve-wracking when you put yourself out there, but you know what? This is how we grow. This is how we develop. Um, Put yourself outside your comfort zone, and um, you know, good things will happen. Good things will happen. So, um, yeah, if you enjoyed last week, um, be great if you could give a little bit of feedback, a little bit of a like, just let us know that, you know, you're listening and, um, and this is having, having an impact in adding value for your, to your day. If you're walking around listening to this, sat in the car driving, I very much enjoy listening to podcasts and it's a great honor and privilege to, uh, have you as one of my audience members. So thank you very much for, for taking the time and your support. But as I said last week, what I was going to do is give you a little bit more background about me and how I I came to be, how I came to be sat before you, uh, telling my tale and hopefully improving your business and, and helping you grow and develop as entrepreneurs. And um, I was going to do it through the Museum of Me. So four little artefacts, four things that if someone was to put a Museum of Me together... Um, these are the four things I would donate. And the first thing, the first artifact I would introduce you to is my little cricket bat. So this cricket bat is, I shall describe it for you, it's it's made out of a bit of a wooden fence. And uh, it was made by my, my great-grandfather, Sidney James, probably around 1977. So this cricket bat's as old as Star Wars. And it's about sort of 12, 13 inches tall. And one of my earliest memories is of holding this cricket bat. So I must have been obviously about 26, 27 inches tall, not a tiny little lad, about three years old. And my granddad chucking a little ball at me, or actually might have been a potato. I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, and I gave this an almighty wallop and broke the cricket bat in half down the length of it. Uh, split it into two. I was very upset. So my granddad taped it together uh, and it sits here with the tape, uh, which is basically as old as the bat. So, uh, you know, I don't want more of a miracle that survived, the, the fact I haven't lost it by now, or that it's still got 45-year-old tape uh, <laughs> around it holding it together. So, um, yeah, so, as I said, I, I, I grew up in Reading, in a, a town called Reading in Berkshire. Um, I was born in 1974, and... Um, I, I came into a very young family, so my um, parents, my mum uh, grew up in, in Reading, my dad grew up in 
in Barbados, the, the beautiful island of Barbados in the Caribbean. Uh, he came over with his uh, parents as part of the, the sort of Windrush generation. And my dad was 19 when I was born and my mum was 17. So I had very, very young parents. And But on top of all of that, my grandparents were quite young as well. Because my um, Pauline, who was my mum's mum, my grandmother, she was uh, 16 when my mum was born. And Sheila, who was my grandmother on my dad's side, um, she was only 15. So I had grandparents who were 33 and 34 years old. So I had a really, really young family. So it, for me, it was unusual for a lot of people because I had great grandparents basically on both sides of my family. And... Um, so, you know, and it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, my parents, as you can imagine, um, didn't stay together long. Um, I, they split up when I was three. You know, the, the, the pressures of, of having a young child at that age is going to be quite intense. So, unfortunately, they, they didn't make it. They split up when I was, um, only when I was three years old. And, um, and then for, you know, the next sort of 10 years after that, I didn't really see an awful lot of my dad. Um, you know, and, he was uh, he was young and off doing you know my dad's stuff. I'm his only only child. He never had any more kids, um, and um, yeah, you know I, he was doing what any twenty twenty uh, you know bloke in his twenties would be doing. Um, but I didn't have much, didn't really see much of him uh, until I was until I was much older actually, um, and so I was raised kind of you know by my grandparents and my mum. Uh, and, um, my mum remarried, or married when I was about five, um, to, a a guy who didn't, didn't like me very much. So I'm not, you know, there's early years and looking at this back, I'm not sort of claiming, um, that it was particularly, you know, any great hardship. I mean, you know, like those sort of age, those sort of years, you know, not many people had an awful lot of money around at the time. Um, people were very careful. Um, my, um, my great grandmother, Miriam, Sid's wife, um, for her, rationing continued into the 1980s. Um, you know, she was a brilliant woman, but she could cut bacon thinner than anything you'd ever, ever, ever seen. You know, wafer thin bread, a bacon sandwich, literally a couple of millimeters thick. Um, and the war defined her. It, it, she always talked about the war. Um, my granddad's shed in the back garden was made out of an Anderson shelter. And, um, you know, she always, always talked about it during, you know, during the war, like that generation did. Um, she had some very interesting values. Um, you know, she, she taught me that, you know, swans would break your legs if they hit you, that not eating, eating your crusts made your hair curly. I had curly hair because, so eating crusts, I got away with that one. Um, that lemons, lemons would dry your blood and that only sailors, motorcycle gangs and fallen women had tattoos. So, um, she had some interesting, you know, Victorian morals and, uh, but yeah, she was a good, they were all, you know, good people. They were all my family and I loved them dearly. Um, and, you know, things carried on. Um, my, um, my stepdad, as I said, you know, we weren't, he wasn't particularly fond of me, but, you know, I was just hung around. My brother, my, my stepbrother and sister, uh, came along a few years later and I just, you know, it's almost like there's not an awful lot to report from that. I just got on with it. I spent my weekends with my um, my grandparents, my Sheila and Vernon, my um, my dad's pet, my dad's parents. And every now and again, my dad would show up and I'd see him. Um, 
And, you know, they really looked after me. You know, I was their only grandson, uh, grandchild, and, you know, it was it was really, really good. So it was okay. You know, I'm not going to sit and try, try and present some sort of story of woe. My early years weren't too bad. We were skint, but you know what? It was that was how things were back then. Um, in my you know in my teens things things shifted a little bit. So everything kind of changed. My great my great grandparents were getting older. Um, my granddad said he was worked for Huntley and Palmer's, um, the biscuit factory. Um, he retired, and um, when I was about twelve, things changed a bit changed quite quickly actually so i'm going to move on to my second artifact so the bat the early years have moved on i'm now about kind of you know 12 years old nothing to moan about too much then things changed a bit and in quite a short space of time actually my kind of life turned upside down to quote the fresh prince of bel-air um and three things hit me in, in quick succession um one was Pauline, my um, mum's mum, my grandmother, she she died of cancer. She went quite quickly. Um, she was a lifelong smoker, big fan of Peter Stuyvesant cigarettes, um, and she died. She, I think she was about well, forty-seven. I think uh, when, when she died, um, and it's an interesting period of life because I'm now forty-six. So you know, one year time, one more year, and I'll be the same age as my grandmother was when she died. Um, so she, yeah, so she passed away, which, um, and I was really close to her and that hit me quite hard. Um, and then shortly afterwards, my, uh, grandparents, Sheila and Vernon moved back to Barbados. Um, again, I knew they were going, it wasn't quick, but you kind of like, don't believe it. They're packing and talking to the shipping line and things like that. Um, so they moved back to the West Indies. And then the third thing that hit was... Um, my, um, stepdad basically left and, um, stopped paying, basically stopped paying the mortgage. So we lost the house. And when I say we lost the house, we lost the house, we lost the house and everything in it. So I don't have many belongings from earlier than the age of 12. Um, all my toys were represent, everything went, um, so at that point, kind of like between the ages of 12 and 14, my entire, all my stability disappeared. Uh, grandparents left. Um, stepfather moved, well, basically disappeared. And um, the only kind of thing I had left um, were a couple of Star Wars figures, of, wh- of which this um, Emperor's Royal Guard was one of, is one of them. So... And I think at that point, I kind of, I actually kind of checked out. The other thing that was hitting was, was the school strikes. So at that point, I was sort of in, you know, in secondary school, and the teachers were having a hell of a, tri- basically, um, a hell of a time, and they were on strike. So most of the afternoon lessons I had at school just didn't happen. And I remember thinking, do you know what? If they can't be bothered, I can't be bothered. And I, I, at this point, I was pretty set on joining the Royal Navy. I was very focused on joining the Navy. Um, I knew that I could do it with zero qualifications. I didn't need a single GCSE to worry about getting into the Navy. So I meant I checked out about that age, about 13. RCS mentally checked out of school. Just didn't give a toss. Couldn't care less. Um, I did the bare minimum I could. 
um, and used it as kind of like my social social group. Um, and um, yeah, you know, and and that was kind of that. Really, we moved into different sort of accommodation, um, temporary accommodation. Um, you know, family of four um, living in. Basically, we moved to a count, you know, a council estate called D Road, um, up in, in, in Reading. And, um, no, it was, it was okay. It wasn't too far away from school I was at, but I was, again, because I'd kind of checked out from school, um, I started to get into trouble. And around this sort of age, I was sort of 15, started getting into not bad trouble, but I started just, going off the rails a little bit and um, demonstrating the early stages of entrepreneurial spirit and um, the way I kind of really <laughs> demonstrated this is raided a uh, Halford Superstore now basically we the Halford Superstore had just been built and it backed onto our estate and um, we realised that they basically, they were quite lazy and they left the delivery doors open um, for quite a long time before and after the deliveries. So, you know, if you're backing onto a housing estate, you do that, it's not going to be long before someone robs it, um, which is what we did. Um, and robbed it and sold the stuff. Um, I coordinated the raid um, and helped sell it it was entrepreneurial I'm not proud of it um but I got caught and um I got I got well basically a caution for for it and um can't believe I'm telling you this but I got a caution for it and it would have been more however what I was told by the police well my mum was told by the police was um that I was quite bright and they caught me once, and if they processed me, I would have got better and better and better. And eventually, what happens? All these things is you know you just end up getting nicked and you do time, proper time. And so processing me and sending me to a young offenders institution probably wouldn't have done anybody any good. So I remember being sitting in front of the chief inspector at Thames Valley Police, being ordered, basically told that I was joining the navy. Um, and about six months later, it was about six or seven months later, um, mum, we, my mum had met, um, my news, my stepdad, uh, and, um, he had a flat closer to town. So we basically got out of the estate, moved down to closer into Reading, got me out of that environment. Um, cause the environment absolutely dictates your performance and, um, things started to change a little bit for me. I got a little bit, I've got a bit of a job working at the garage and then my date, I applied to join the Royal Navy. Um, I applied in April. I thought I'd be joining in September. And in June, I had my date to, to leave. So, so that was that. So, you know, the, I had to put the, the Star Wars figures away and, um, move on to my next artifact, which is the, the cap, my, um, Royal Naval ratings cap as part of my uniform so you know the next sort of major phase of my life excuse me just grab some water was as a royal navy serviceman and i did uh best part of eight years in the navy from um june 1991 till 
sort of November 98. And um, looking back, I really, really enjoyed it. I got through training pretty well. Um, basic training was hard because basic training I suppose, is going to be hard. You know, I was literally I was 17 years old, one month and one day when I joined. Um, and um, I found it pretty challenging. Uh, fitness I had no problem about. I was fit as anything. I'd been playing rugby for, for years. And actually that got me through the early part of my naval career quite well because I was good at rugby. So I ended up playing uh, for the Navy uh, Colts, Royal Navy Colts team while I was still in basic training. Yes, I was that good. And um, it was fantastic. You know, if you're going to do sport, the, the, the armed services are a fantastic place to do that. And I grew up, you know, grew up quickly. Got through training, uh, got through part one, part two. Part two training was all the seamanship. Um, and it was a love, it was a lovely summer. Um, so I, you know, I joined the Navy in June, June 1991. Summer of 1991 was really, really nice. And I went through seamanship. So I learned to sail, um, near Plymouth. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just quite, it was nice being out on the boats. And, um, yeah, just, I really, really enjoyed that. And then part three was a place called HMS Cambridge. It's no longer there. And I went into basically into Royal Naval Gunnery. I wanted to learn how to shoot and fire, fire weapons. Did that. And then got my first draft after I completed that, which was HMS Ark Royal. So the aircraft, the, uh, aircraft carrier. Um, joined Ark Royal and then grew up very, very quickly. Went from being a child to, you know, in a, in a, um, a room of men, 39 other blokes. Um, and you're in the Royal Navy at that point with its discipline, with its rules, and, um, you, you have to kind of grow up. So, um, especially when in the second year of your, um, service, you are asked to go to basically police the Bosnia conflict. And, um, that basically dictated the next couple of years of my life. I was, um, we were supposed to be sailing to uh, Rotterdam. Not much was going on. And then next thing you know is we're off to the Adriatic uh, with not a huge amount of notice on a war footing. Um, exciting, yes. Um, but also slightly scary. Probably scarier for the people behind because, you know, I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest with you. Got down there and um, we did basically, as an aircraft carrier, you are a floating airfield. We did uh, operations pretty much 24 hours a day getting the Harriers up and up and in so they can do their job um, and keeping an eye out for any, basically any incoming threats. Um, and I was in defence watches, which was basically six hours on, six hours off for the next eight months. Um, we'd go for a little bit of rest and recuperation into some small Italian towns, um, basically get drunk and, you know, have and relax you know, looking back to it, looking back on it, it was, there wasn't an awful lot we did really. We just kind of, you know, did our job. And then we go to some random Italian town and drink loads of wine and insult the locals. It's kind of what we did. Um, and my naval career was, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. The aircraft carriers, I did that with, with um, HMS Art Royal. Then I served on HMS Invincible and basically exactly the same thing down the Adriatic um, for a couple of years. Then we had a, I had a break as a shoreside. And then I joined a, sh a frigate called HMS Montrose, um, a Type 23 frigate based out of Plymouth. 
and went down to uh, Falkland Islands guardship on her. And that was, I think, the defining trip in my naval career. Um, I absolutely loved it. We went through the Panama Canal, down the Pacific side of South America, through the Magellan Straits, into the South Atlantic, obviously around the Falkland Islands, down to South Georgia, South Sandwich Islands. And it was amazing. Um, a fantastic ship, a fantastic crew. I'm f- close friends with a, still a lot of the guys I was on that ship with even now. Um, and when I got back, I kind of felt that I'd done a good lap. And the next lap of the Navy would be the same. It would just be at a different rank. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. I had set my kind of goal on getting a commission, becoming a naval officer. Um, but, and bear in mind, I'd wanted to join the Navy since I was like in my teens. I started at that point to harbour ideas about leaving. And um, then I started to... Uh, basically self-educate. You know, I'd left school with no GCSEs, nothing above C. Um, so I started to basically put myself back into school. Uh, distance learning, spending all that time when you're at C educating yourself. And um, I passed my GCSEs, the English, uh, maths, general studies, um, and a couple of others. I can't remember what they were. Um, and then I went to... Then I, I got basically, I was about to get promoted. Um, and I played rugby against, um, the RAF and, um, at RAF Odium. And I, and I ruptured my cruciate ligament in my left knee. And, um, basically that ended my naval career. I didn't know it at the time, but it did. Um, it, it caused a massive amount of damage in my knee. Um, to the point where it's, it has, I have never fully recovered from it. So I was 24. I was frontline, uh, frontline sailor, just about to been promoted and bang, my knee was basically blown to smithereens. I'd started in my GCSEs. I've got a couple. So I was basically shore, shore based at a place called HMS Dryad, which is just, it was, uh, in a place called Southwark near Portsmouth. And I had to, rebuild my career and it was the first time that I'd done it that I'd had to do this and again little did I know that I would be go through this process a few times further on um I've never been afraid to take risks um not reckless not as I thought I was reckless but I didn't realize joining the navy felt like a a logical thing to do but leaving the navy felt like a logical thing to do as well and at this point that had settled that idea of me leaving had settled so I started went to college um got uh a levels and I knew I wanted to get involved into technology so I was working when I was working at HMS Dryad I was um at the PC support desk so they had a computer network very early kind of rudimentary computer network there and we helped upgrade it and I discovered I had an affinity with technology I knew how it worked I knew how computers worked I could work because I, you know, part of the engineering side of being in the Navy, I knew how I could connect things and basically troubleshoot. Um, I had an agile mind as well and I learned really, really fast. So all these things connected to basically me becoming quite, um, you know, instrumental in, in that little operation very, very quickly. And then I started to realize, started to see my worth. I started to see that I had something to offer the world outside of what I was doing with the Royal Navy. Um, and as a result, I started to get a little bit bullshit and a little bit annoyed and start to push 
the boundaries. And when when you're at sea, you can push the boundaries a little bit because you know you're on basically on a big floating tin can filled with ammunition and fuel. Um, so anything that kind of you know is results around danger, you get slapped down quite quickly. But people tend to be a little bit more flexible around the discipline side of things. Uh, on a shore base, everybody's watching you, and there is no no discipline. There's no uh, leeway at all. So I got hammered a few times for some insubordinate behaviour, um, and um, just basically being a bit of a bit of an an, an un, un, not an unpleasant sailor, but basically being a bit of a slovenly rating, as someone would say. That's probably what it what it comes down to. And um, yeah, so uh, I left. Um, the Royal Navy, uh, and went straight into, into university, uh, to the University of Portsmouth, um, to do a course called Entertainment Technology. So the Navy cap got put down. And my final artifact that I'm going to introduce into the museum of, of me is the, what I'm using right now is my MacBook Pro. Now, I haven't had this MacBook Pro since then, not at all. I've had it since 2013. But it's, think of it as a, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of me since then. And, um, when I was at uni, I basically used university to kind of reintegrate myself into society. Um, didn't take long. Um, I met some really good mates at uni. The course was a, was the first of its kind. Um, and it was designed to put basically tech um project managers out into into the world and um unfortunately at that time we had the dot com crash in my third year so i came out of uh, university essentially into a world where there were a lot of people there were more qualified than me with great experience who were looking for the same jobs so i had to go into sales and the first step into sales I went into was for a printing company. Apparently it was creative, digital print, a printing company um, in London. And as much as thinking back to that job, it annoyed me um, and I fell out with them in the end. It was an absolute, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a, a real introduction into sales. You know, 100 calls a day, picking up the phone, ringing people. It got you over the fear of the phone and the fear of selling. And I got, and I was pretty good at it. But the problem is, is my, I just, I was incapable and haven't been of being managed. And I really, again, the entrepreneur started to, to speak. And when I look back at my kind of career and I look back at my life, I can see now certain parts in my life where I have been entrepreneurial and it's just down to the way I think and the way I behave. It's in my DNA, uh, you know, from raiding a, a superstore <laughs> through to some of the things I did in the, in, in the Royal Navy, um, through to, you know, university, to the way I thought about in early jobs. So, um, yeah, printing job lasted for about a year and in that time I met uh, my wife, Amy, um, we'd had, uh, had a child, Lana, and I needed to get a better job. So I started working for a design agency. Um, and then I needed to get 
a pro, you know, almost like a proper job, something that felt like I had prospects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that's when I got into the aesthetics market because a friend of mine was working for a company, a biotech company that had this thing called a hyaluronic acid filler, and that company had bought another company called Collagen Corporation. So that company was Inamed. So my first job in aesthetics was selling hyaluronic acid filler in the southwest of England. Uh, with also with collagen and again really enjoyed it great fun good couple of years that company then was bought by Allergan and um, I think they almost say the rest is history actually you know Allergan uh, as you know market leaders the global leaders in medical aesthetic technology and I worked my way through the ranks with Allergan um, discovered again at the, one point at the end of this that the entrepreneur came through again um, he wanted to be heard and um, I left Allergan created RCS Consulting and through various different different um, processes and learning experiences um, I am here before you so that's a very very quick background uh, of, of me really um, from day one with a little cricket bat through to you know what I'm using right now to talk to you the MacBook Pro. And as I did promise, you know, I bring all this down to, you know, a couple of key lessons. It's not just a, you know, self-indulgent, you know, explanation of who I, who I am. But through the stories of other people, we can learn a little bit about ourselves. And I think if you go back through your life and do the similar sort of thing, you'll see certain traits, certain personality traits that have risen and have been sort of slapped down. You know, you can't be entrepreneurial in the Royal Navy. Of course, you know, you can't. Um, you can't. But also, as a sales rep, you can't really do it there. And as soon as those things happened and I was told, no, I can't, I started to rebel and push back against those structures um, and then eventually leave. And that's been a sort of a constant in my life. Um, and it, uh, it's... it's it's that kind of learning process that's almost pushed me through all of those processes and all of those journeys to be here right in front of you now. And um, <clears throat> I wouldn't change anything for the world. Of course, you know, maybe it would have been lovely to have spent more time with um, my grandmother, Pauline. You know, she died when I died quite young. Uh, well, very young, actually, at 47. Um, and it would have been nice to have spent a bit more time with... Sheila and Vernon in the UK because when they moved to Barbados I didn't I saw them a handful of times over the next um, 20 years before you know before they both passed away as well um, so you know Sid he lived to a ripe old age of 93 um, and Miriam um, unfortunately she uh, died of Alzheimer's but um, she you know she had a, a good innings as they say as well so you know looking back on the museum of me do you know what it's we it these things take you where you need to go. And I don't live my life in the past. Um, I try very hard not to. You know, nostalgia is, you know, they don't, nostalgia. They don't do it like they used to. Um, I'm very much a forward thinker. And for me, this has been a great, you know, exercise in explaining to you a little bit about my background. Um, but really, that's where we were. Now I want to look forward and... It's taking the steps forward every day to make sure that you get where you want to get to and when you want to get to your goals. So thanks very much for indulging me on that one. 
episode three, we're going to have a look at you. So we're going to take some steps in thinking about some of the ways in which we can help you to uncover your own, the museum of me, look at some of the key elements in in your life that have shaped you and um, and created who you are. And my final thought is don't be afraid of it. Some Going back through this um, process has brought up certain feelings and certain emotions. And you know what? As a, the certain decisions that you, you make as an adult that can be traced right back to you as a child. Um, getting mindset coaching taught me that from a wonderful lady called Karen Font Garcia. Um, and you have to deal with these things. You can't keep just let them, um, you know, fester. Otherwise they can destroy your future. So you just say, don't let your past destroy your future. Um, deal with them, get them out there. And then you can move forward in a very, very strong way. So there we go. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll say we're going to take another little bit of a step forward. We're going to look at you. I'm going to give you some thoughts and some some techniques that you can use to uncover this sort of stuff yourself. And do you know what? Have a go at it in the meantime. Have a go at doing your museum of me. What artifacts would you put into that museum? And um, share it. You know, you can feel free to join the Facebook group. Um, you can PM me, Richard Crawford Small. I'm there on social media. I'm not shy and I'm not hidden. So um, feel free to uh, reach out uh, and um, let me know how let me know how you're getting on and how you felt this has gone for you. So there we go. All good. Take care. Speak to you soon. Bye now. Subscribe now for tips, insight, and stories to enhance, empower, educate, and elevate your business to new heights.